o'clock exactly, so we can go ahead and get started. I'd like to welcome you all to our session, Can Audiences Design Their Own Programs? My name is Flora Ward. I was part of the project team here, and I'm going to start by introducing um, Audience Embedded, a collaborative project. Um, can everyone hear me okay with the microphone? Excellent, okay. Hopefully the technology gods will be in our favor today. They were acting a little flaky earlier, but fingers crossed you'll be able to see the pictures. Um, so I'll start with an introduction and then other members of the project team will present on their experiences uh, with this uh, project as well. All right, so thank you. So today, as I said, I'm going to introduce Audience Embedded, a collaborative project that challenges institutional authority and places agency in the hands of members of the public. Audience Embedded inverts traditional top-down methods of devising public programs in which um, museum staff develop programming that we hope will interest our audiences. Instead, we explored what happens when we put audience members themselves in the driver's seat. In other words, we sought nothing less than the ambitious goal of historical programming for the people, by the people. For the past two years, a team of museum professionals, scholars, artists, and members of the public have been working together to achieve this goal. I want to emphasize the profoundly collaborative nature of Audience Embedded, which was undertaken by two organizations with deep but very different roots in our city and region, the Historical Society of Pennsylvania and Taller Puerto Riqueño, both institutions pictured here. Based in the heart of Center City, HSP is one of the largest and oldest historical societies in the country, with over 21 mil million manuscripts, books, and graphic images. Less well-known is HSP's strong collection of ethnic and immigrant studies materials, and the creation of Audience Embedded was in part prompted by desire to foster public knowledge of and engagement with these materials. Based in North Philadelphia, in the heart of the city's Puerto Rican community, Taller Puerto Riqueño is dedicated to preserving and promoting Puerto Rican arts and culture in order to empower its community. Our next speaker, Israel Colon, to my right, will tell you more about the history of Taller Puerto Riqueño and its role in this collaboration, but I want to highlight Taller's Eugenio Maria de Ostos archive. Named after the famous educator and advocate for Puerto Rican independence, Taller's archive offers a unique perspective on the organization and its community, and is particularly rich in, in visual materials such as prints and photographs. We started Audience Embedded with goals for the institutions involved as well as for the project as a whole. On an institutional level, we sought to produce audience-driven public programming and build our own institutional capacity for audience development through collaboration. For the project itself, our goal was to engage members of the public in original archival research, the results of which would form the basis for innovative public programs centered around the theme of the Puerto Rican experience in Philadelphia. Finally, we also hoped to draw out parallels between the per Puerto Rican experience and that of other groups, particularly experiences relating to migration and translocation, so important in today's world. As you might imagine, people are at the heart of this project, and one of the first tasks we had was to assemble a group known as the PAZ, the P-A-Z, or Program Audience Groomers. 
This was the core group of people who carried out original archival research and generated ideas for programs based on that research. Veronica Stickelman will tell you more about her experience as a PAS member. So here I just want to highlight the role of this group from a little more of a, an overarching institutional perspective. So as soon as our grant was approved by the Pew, the project team began recruiting PAS members and setting goals and benchmarks for success. PAS members were drawn from the audiences of both HSP and Tayer and selected because of their engagement with these organizations and their community. Given the multiple demands on people's time, one of the incentives for recruiting PAS members, other than, of course, the fabulous incentive of being able to do archival research, was the provision of a modest honorarium for attending meetings. This honorarium, together with a more convenient Saturday morning meeting time, as well as people's genuine enthusiasm for the subject of Puerto Rican history, made it possible to create a remarkably committed and engaged group of 17 PAS members. One of the most important benchmarks for success for our project was that participants have a sense of ownership over the process and the products as from the project as a whole. Now this necessitated a complex balancing act of letting go of institutional authority at the same time that there was provided structure and support for the work of the PAS. I will revisit this important balancing aspect of the project at various points um, during my discussion today. So as I said, Audience Embedded assembled a remarkable group of people to carry out archival research and generate program ideas. Don't worry, I'm not gonna go through every name here, but I want to highlight the fact that PAS members were drawn from the communities of both HSP in reddish pink and Tayer in light blue, with the goal of increasing people's familiarity and engagement with these organizations, sort of cross-pollinating our audiences. The diverse backgrounds of PAS members included K through 12 and university education, community activism, and the arts. Some people had firsthand experience of Puerto Rican history and culture, while others had more limited knowledge of the specific Puerto Rican experience, but were familiar with that of other groups. Overall, the PAS was a complex cross-section of each organization's community, representing both the ideal audience for our programming as well as the engine driving its creation. I also want to highlight the work of the members of the project team, the core group of individuals who've seen the project from start to finish. Though our model was decidedly democratic, we still needed to administer the project and evaluate its results. Project director Beth Twist-Howding from HSP and Carmen Febo San Miguel of Taller provided leadership. While we had a project evaluator who analyzed each of the meetings, compiled all of our survey data, and offered suggestions for improvement based on all of our benchmarks for success that we set out at the beginning. Finally, in my role as project facilitator, I moderated the PAS meetings and served as the primary point of contact between PAS members and the project team as a whole. Last but certainly not least, Audience Embedded engaged the expertise of technical advisors, a group of historians, archivists, artists, and experts on public programming to present PAS members um, with information about their areas of expertise and to provide feedback and guidance as needed throughout the process. This slide introduces you briefly to our group of technical advisors. We had an archivist, um, Witt Lopez, in the upper left, historians Ariel Arnau and Seth Brueggemann of Temple University, 
artists Amy Gordon and Michelle Angela Ortiz, and a public program specialist Sean Kelly of Eastern State Penitentiary. Aime Gordon will speak more about the role of the technical advisors in his part of this presentation today. So as you can see, Audience Embedded assembled quite a complex cast of characters. One of the challenges of this project was maintaining communication among members of this diverse group. So our project lead undertook administrative coordination while I handled sort of day-to-day -day communication, emailing, um, creating and managing shared Google Drive with notes, resources, research resources, timelines, that sort of thing. So now I have introduced the people involved. Now I want to talk about the process of Audience Embedded. So this timeline provides a general overview of the project activities starting in fall of 2017 after the grant was approved and concluding next month in September with a public program celebrating the culmination of the project. The heart of the project was a series of PAS meetings, research sessions, and field trips that took place throughout 2018. I want to highlight the importance of the process itself in Audience Embedded. While our goal was to generate programming, the unique collaborative process by which that programming was developed was every bit as important as the final product. Once the core group of PAS members and technical advisors had been assembled, we began by introducing everyone to HSP and Tayer and their respective archives. Meetings took place at both locations, building familiarity with each organization and its resources. Our goal here was to ensure that all PAS members were equipped with the information they needed to carry out research at both institutions, regardless of their prior knowledge of each organization or experience with archival research. Having introduced people to the archives of HSP and Tayer, we then set everyone loose to carry out their research. Throughout April of 2018, project archivist Witt Lopez worked with PAS members as they explored their research interests. The goal of this part of the process was to generate the raw historical material that would inform the group's programming ideas. Often seen as the province of specialists, archival research can be intimidating. Audience Embedded sought to break down barriers to public engagement with archival material encouraging people to find their own way with the guidance of a professional archivist. So after spending time in the archives, the group transitioned to thinking about public history and public programs. Four technical advisors gave presentations on Puerto Rican history in Philadelphia, on how to craft effective public history projects, and how to tell the stories of marginalized people through public programs and artistic performance. The aim here was to provide PAS members the tools and information they would need to transform their archival research into ideas for programs. So during the summer of 2018, formal PAS meetings went on hiatus because so many people are traveling in the summer, but there were two optional field trips offered. These trips offered on-the-ground experience of Latino and Puerto Rican history in Philadelphia and showcased models for exhibitions and programs that could explore underrepresented histories. The first trip was to the Ninth Street Market with artist Michelle Angela Ortiz, whose family has deep roots in the neighborhood. By exploring her family history and that of the neighborhood as a whole, participants got to see firsthand an example of the intersections of Latino culture and Philadelphia's urban geography. 
On the second trip to the African American Museum, PAS members had the opportunity to listen to local textile artist Betty Leecraft speak about her work, which engages with the history of Philadelphia's African American neighborhoods through maps, photos, and oral history. Both Leecraft and Ortiz's art making is socially engaged and deeply rooted in their communities and provided a lot of food for thought for our PAS members. Coming back from the summer, we launched into what was arguably the trickiest part of this project, transitioning from the fun part of brainstorming ideas to the slightly less fun part of narrowing down specific topics for programs. <coughs> As you can imagine, this process was not seamless. And to my mind, that's what makes this part of the project the richest to reflect on. Over the course of two meetings in the fall, the PAS worked to identify concrete program topics and formats. And in December, the project team presented to the PAS their proposal for how to realize the PAS's ideas. So let me unpack this part of the process in a bit more detail. So on September 15th, the group presented the results of their archival research, identifying common themes to explore in programs. Then PAS members broke into smaller groups and worked with technical advisors to narrow down potential program topics. Now, given the enthusiasm and the range of research undertaken by PAS members, topics multiplied rather than consolidated. While there were plenty of shared themes and overlapping interests, the sheer quantity of ideas and topics quickly got overwhelming, making it a challenge to winnow them down to a handful of program themes. The project team also noticed how challenging it was for us to discuss themes and subject matter separately from issues of format and audience. So the project schedule had allocated separate meetings to discuss these components, but PAS members were clearly integrating subject matter, format, and audience from an early stage in their thinking. So then, on October 13th, we met to discuss the issue of program formats. In between these two PAS meetings, the project team and technical advisors had met to discuss the plethora of ideas that arose from the September meeting, doing our best to narrow them down to three broad categories oral history test or testimonials, the virtual arts, and visual or digital mapping um, or timelines. So at the meeting, we asked PAS members to filter each program idea by asking them a series of very pragmatic questions. Does the program meet the grant requirements to examine Puerto Rican history? Will the program reach diverse audiences? And finally, do we as organizations have the resources to implement these programs successfully? As the project facilitator guiding the conversation, I could sense that this transition from freewheeling idea generation to nuts and bolts practicalities lowered the overall level of energy in the room. <laughs> Though the project team strived to synthesize the PAS members' ideas as accurately as possible, there seemed to be here a really important shift in agency from the PAS members themselves to the project team, which became even more marked in the final meeting in December. So in December, the PAS met for the final time. At this meeting, the project team led by Beth Twist Houting presented our proposals for the final product and programming that came out of all of those PAS discussions, and we wanted people's input. PAS members had shown a keen desire to take advantage of digital technology to create a lasting product in this project, not just ephemeral programming. So we proposed a digital history website, including digitized oral histories, documents from archives, and audience responses to works of art from Taller, 
all of which would be selected by a team of PAS volunteers as well as youth advisors. Another shared concern of the PAS was youth engagement. So we also proposed that the material from the Digital History Project form the backbone of a new high school curriculum to be created in the future. Finally, a pair of public programs would solicit feedback on the website and present the final product to the public. So where are we now? At this time, a group of PAS members has been working together with technical advisors and members of the project team to identify materials to be included in the website and as well as um, settle on an overall format for the website. The launch of the Digital History Project will be celebrated on Wednesday, September 18th at a public event that'll take place at both HSP and Tyre. And if any of you are in town, we welcome you to join us. It's a free event, there'll be loads of delicious food and you'll get to talk to some great people. So I would like to conclude by offering my perspective on the challenges and some of the takeaways from this project. As I hope is clear from my presentation, I personally enjoyed working on this project and learned a great deal from it, but it was not without its challenges. The first major challenge I observed was that of narrowing down ideas. With such an engaged and interested group of people, the project kept getting larger and broader rather than smaller and narrower. It was also difficult to separate subject matter from program format and audience. So perhaps in future, we would rethink how we structured the transition from brainstorming to narrowing down ideas. Project team members had to stay agile and responsive as the PAS took us in unexpected directions. While this was a welcome challenge and sort of the point of the whole project, it was difficult to administer the project and keep both the process and its products at a reasonable and achievable scale. Administrative challenges were intensified by staff turnaround at both Tyre and HSP, which unfortunately experienced a 30% layoff of its workforce on April 8, 2019. This definitely had an impact and was not something we could have planned for. Finally, a few takeaways. In a project like Audience Embedded, which seeks to transfer authority from institutions to audiences, it's fundamentally important to listen and be flexible and responsive. For those of us who work in museums and cultural organizations, our habits and expectations are going to be challenged because this is not your typical program generating process. It can also be challenging to satisfy expectations funders have for deliverables in a project like this one, in which the process itself is arguably every bit as important as the products it generates. But these are all, I think, productive challenges, ones from which both organizations have learned a great deal and the experience of audience embedded will go on to inform future programming at both institutions. So thank you. Um, I'm going to turn the microphone over to my colleague, Izzy. I'd like to ask, I should have said this first, that we hold our questions until everyone has presented their perspective. Um, so here you go. Do you have the microphone? Uh, I think so. Can anybody hear me? Hi, Beth, how are you? Are we having wine at the place? <laughs> no, just so you get around. It's okay. Bienvenido. How many are from Philly, by the way? A few. Okay. Then you'll understand some of this. The rest, I'll send it to you over email. Bienvenido. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Good afternoon. I'd like to basically follow up on Flora's overview by providing a quick synopsis of the Taller Puerto Riqueño, which translates to uh, the, the um, Puerto Rican workshop. Right? and its connection to the audience embedded collaboration. Um, 
I kind of put this together because part of a piece that I'm working on um, with the HSP for the website is I took some pieces that I thought might be relevant so you can get some background on this community. It's a migrant community that came from uh, an island, as, uh, as Trump has made it clear. It's an island somewhere in the Caribbean, right? But it is, but it's also a colony of the United States. Um, and I won't go too much into that because that, although that's important when you look at migrants and immigrants, right? But anyway, let me uh, talk about a few points about the migration history of the Puerto Rican community in the city. I have referred to this book by Dr. Victor Vaque, he's one of the local scholars uh, that recently published a book called Before the Wave, both Puerto Ricans and Philly from 1910 and 1945, um, where he documents the history of the first Puerto Ricans and smaller groups that had arrived from the island. Most were tobacco workers, all right, because that was the part of the big industry at that time, right? So it dated right. back to the early part of the last century. He chronicles, you know, why and how Puerto Ricans, or we, me, how I got here, right, and my family, why Puerto Ricans in their early arrival were initially dispersed when they arrived in various neighborhoods throughout the city, right, depending on the time of arrival. And at one point, it was ships, right? So there's parts of Philadelphia by the ports, and that's typical in most places, right? I mean, you've had that experience. And as with the advent of airfare, airplanes, you have what they call the big Puerto Rican wave, right? That was post-World War II, right? And most people think it's only New York City, but no, we, we had a substantial influx of Puerto Rican migrants that have come here seeking jobs and a variety of other things. Right? But they occupied several different neighborhoods in the community. That ultimately, as their numbers grew, they also began to face some discriminatory local market forces, right? Uh, some were market, some were basically social discrimination forces, right? But that I'm talking about, you know, redlining, I'm talking about um, uh, housing discrimination. Um, those kinds of things that force this community to reside in a more concentrated space in a part of Philadelphia that's called the Eastern North Philadelphia section of the city. People know the Philly map. You go up, there you go. Broad yeah. Street divides from east to west, so it's most Puerto Ricans live on the east side and north of Market or north of Gerard Avenue. Okay, so you get a sense. And the highest concentration is within a zip code, 19133, which is the highest concentration of Puerto Ricans, yet unfortunately, it has the highest poverty rate in the city, including the, 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 the lowest life expectancy. So I wanna give you a sense, of, but then you have a, a pre-growing working class, right, that was there over time. By the 1970s, after World War II, uh, and I think she's Temple, Judith Good is in Temple, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, again, I got all this stuff from the archives, <laughs> which is interesting, so I'm a neophyte. All right. By the 1970s, anthropologist Judith Good observes that Puerto Rican began to move between African Americans on the west side of Philly and whites 
and the east side. Basically, they serve as a buffer in between, right, to protect the color line, right? That created a bunch of problems. But Puerto Ricans learned then that Philadelphia, known nationwide for being the city of brotherly love, was really a city that was deeply racially segregated. Despite these conditions, right, the special, the spatial concentration of the population, so now it was more concentrated and they had larger numbers, and provided a geography, a well-defined geography for what? For organizing, right? That led to a pivotal byproduct, right, which was the growth of his collective cultural identity embraced by an energized younger generation of civically engaged Puerto Ricans. Can I remind you of what's happening today in a lot of our sectors, right? A younger generation of Puerto Ricans, many of whom were influenced, mind you, this is in the 70s, this, by the political climate of the 60s and 70s. And what, we, what did we have then? An era in which we witnessed masses of young people, they were older people too, right? Define the status quo as they protested the Vietnam War racism, and the disastrous effect of unfettered capitalism, right? Today, that's standard, right? At that time, those that lived it, I don't think anybody, I don't think anybody, I don't see anybody that from that era that was there. <laughs> In response, we witnessed the growth of what? The black power movements, right? But there was also Puerto Rican independence movement, and civil rights movement, and they were here in Philly. It is this historical and political context that shapes the founding of the Day of Puerto Ricano as opposed to a social service agency, right? In 1974. So it's founded in 1974. In fact, many of the original board members, right, were young people that had participated in some of the progressive movements. So that shaped an ideological view, right? That meant that how they viewed the arts was also ideological. So that tells them more or less how it got founded. That Yale has been around for 45 years now. And over the course of that time has been, like um, Claudia said, elevating and preserving Puerto Rican Latino culture to its arts and cultural programming. With its arts education, and uh, what we call socially conscious art exhibits, right? Book readings and public events. Tayel engages the public actually in conversations that stimulate debate, create opportunities and make connect the connections necessary to improve relationships with other neighborhoods, other people in the city because no community lives in isolation. As an example, for the last 23 years, the Tayet sponsored what is called basically the annual Arthur Schoenberg, or let me just move back, Arthur Arturo Schoenberg Symposium, right? This is a well-attended annual event that brings in a real diverse, broad audience of activists, historians, community members, right? to explore issues related to the Afro-Puerto Rican and Afro-Latino experience, right? 
while making vital connections with that of the African-American experience in the city, right? And I just remind you, after all, Schoenberg is a key bridge. You know why? Because Schoenberg was born in Santurce, Puerto, Puerto Rico. He was, his mother was a free slave, right? And his father was German, so he was, he was one of maritime, uh, right? But the point I'm trying to make here is that this is uh, something that even many African Americans weren't aware of at the time when we started this, right? But he's an, a natural bridge. Why? Because he's an iconic Afro-Caribbean figure who by the 1920s had massed an unprecedented and historically valuable archival collection which consisted of artworks, manuscripts, rare books, narratives of those that were enslaved, and a whole set of artifacts of black history. If I'm not mistaken, I think the New York City Library bought that, bought the collection. I'm not certain. I know they have a Schoenberg Center in Harlem that is, you all ever get by, you can really see. So for more than four decades, in counting, Dayel continues its work as it evolves. And it still makes its home in a location that is considered the heart of the Puerto Rican community, right? And in 2016, after 10 years of sweat and tears, we opened new, a new 24,000 square foot cultural center, right? Which houses a state-of-the-art gallery, uh, theater for performances, uh, art classrooms for our, for our young people. And so the, yeah, basically today it's considered you know, one of the oldest but yet largest um, um, uh, Latino-based cultural centers in the entire state and in the region. I wanted to give you this background in history because I believe um, that when you speak about that, yeah, you can see why it was a natural partner. It was a natural thing to partner with, with the historical society, right? Uh, because since its founding, Dayel had been accumulating thousands of, <laughs> of documents, prints, uh, photographs, uh, and other material that reflected really the institution's legacy history, but yeah. also the, the events in our community, right? So it was really a natural marriage, right? I would say that until a few years ago, the growth of Dayel's archives was really an organic process, right? In other words, we would collect stuff, try to file it, put it in a closet, you know. I mean, that's the way we volunteers. That's the way we work, right? Although we recognize its importance, lack of funding had traditional had, had, had negated our capacity to organize them in ways that were meaningful and accessible to the public, much less think about engaging neighborhood residents or audiences in designing programs, right? It's hard enough trying to organize this stuff. But that changed, right? But Dayel's participation in this particular project, right, was a natural relationship. The last two years, in my view, was indeed an exciting, uh, really exciting and learning experience for all of us, all of us involved. But I will highlight the experiences by pointing to a few of my two observations. You're not asleep, are you? Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't mind if you do. Okay. One, 
And I'm going to amplify some of the points that Flora made. One, the diverse nature of FAST members, both in terms of skills, life experiences, and diversity, added an important element to the process that should not be understated. If you're going to do a project like that, this is essential. For those of us representing, let's say, the Tallez side of the partnership, right? It was an opportunity to learn from others the role and usefulness of our private work, right? But it also provided the non-Puerto Ricans in the group an opportunity to learn about the historical migration of Puerto Ricans in the city, its challenges, how they impacted the host community, and conversely, how the host, com <laughs> how the, how the host community impacted Puerto Ricans, especially when they were fresh newcomers, right? So you can make these correlations with other immigrant groups, including your own history, your own. You start looking back, right? We also collectively learn how Puerto Ricans as a migrant community mirrored the experience of other immigrants in the city. So I think th this, this cannot be. Two, those of us like myself, admittedly a neophyte in this field, we were astounded with the material we found when we started doing research at the Historic Society. I mean, I think I went there one time in the six, no, in the 70s for some meeting. But it had nothing to do with uh, archives. But anyway, that's to show you, it's been a long time. And I saw this beautiful building, and I went in with some of the other folks, and we were just flabbergasted, right? I mean, we couldn't get enough, right? Admittedly, the interface with the archives Although it was a teaser, right? Let's not say there was a comprehensive research, but it was a teaser. It left some lasting impressions about our findings and its future use and potential. The third thing, the selection process of who will be technical advisors, I believe, was key to a learning experience. And I'll tell you why. And Flora made mention of that. Um, it is one thing for you to have a session like that and bring a historian to lecture about a topic. No big deal. Kind of, they're all over the place. It is another to get a historian, right, that lived a part of that history that he writes about. It's a whole different ballgame, right? We got Dr. Vic. Victor Vázquez, Dr. Ariel now that's a different generation, but both of them live half their lives in the city and in the heart of this community and were connected. And by the way, Bas Victor's uh, research depended a lot on the HSP archives and central studio. So I mean, there you see these connections. Similarly, uh, advisors like Anne Gordon, that's right here, and Michelle Ortiz demonstrated. Now these are, you know, professional don't write that achieved a great deal, right? But demonstrated in practice, we could see it, how the arts can be used to inform, right? The type of archival research for programs that reaches existing and new audiences. So for us that was key. And I think if you're gonna do a project like that, you know, don't just say, oh, they're just technical advisors. Uh, doesn't work that way. 
And I think this for offers here, and you, Beth, and you guys did a fantastic job in, in the selection process. Four, I'm almost through. <laughs> the field visits. Again, there is only so much you can do in a classroom. And I don't, I, that's not being degrading of, of the little circles we have, and, you know, <laughs> workouts. No, 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 that's important, right? But you have to make those connections. My visit to the African American Museum in the city, have you anybody gone there yet? Good, good, I'm glad. So you come all the way from the city and you don't visit some of our institutions, right? No, no, I'm not criticizing you, okay. <laughs> My visit, and I don't know if, if her work is still there, but I went to see Betty Lecross exhibit um, that for me was an eye-opener because she had that, and that day she had um, an exhibit called uh, Kensington Memories, right? What she did, she took, it, it was basically a six foot by six foot mixed media quilt. Now think about it, right? Providing a fascinating historical and political overview of, oh my God, okay, of the transformation of the Kensington neighborhood. Now, if people don't know what Kensington, you probably have, have had them in your cities or your towns. Kensington basically was uh, a white working class neighborhood, right? That moved that as Puerto Ricans came in because that area that we're in, there were a lot of factories. There was a lot of employment. As the 1970 recession hit, right? Those factory closed. Uh, what do they call it? West Side? I don't know. Anyway. But anyway, that was the scenario. But she, what she did, she, she did with one piece of art, you could see how she covered the transformation of a democracy uh, of this neighborhood over decades. She went from the 1950s right through the Rizzo years to something in the 80s. Incredible work. If you get a chance, look her up on the website. Um, fifth. Leadership, that's my last. Um, I completely concur with Florida's assessment. The, the project leadership did an excellent job of being flexible, open, open to new ideas, and conversation while trying to keep us on track. You know, we had timelines, we had bubbles, all that good stuff. But there was something important that comes out of this, and I remember, now I remember, that's a matter of age. Things come to you at different moments in time. Is that at the beginning, we kind of were stuck in our little groups. Right? In other words, I know Florida. I immediately, first meeting, I was sitting with her. Right? It's a natural human instinct. You go with people you know. By the end of the day, they were, we were after a long process. Now we were hanging out. Didn't matter, because we appreciated everything that people had to offer. So for me, the importance of nurturing a positive group dynamic and forging some kind of group cohesion um, was a central part of realizing these goals. I'm not saying, you know, we went home together, but, you know, that, that's central when you're organizing these kinds of things. Finally, the future is bright despite funding, 
and other obstacles. Uh, Abtayel, as a nonprofit, to me, base, we're used to this. We, we've been through it all. We've been to a point where people didn't get paid at times. I mean, that's a reality in the arts world. I mean, I'm saying, at least the neighborhood arts world, right? For us, we anticipate one, completing, digitizing our archival library so you all can get on it. We also hope to explore opportunities made possible by the newly designed website, Beth. Uh, we're already exploring how our youth component can use, utilize the archive to inform the education work, right? We've talked about the development of curriculum for various age groups and audiences. I mean, this all comes out of this process, two-year process, right? Basically, for us in Tayyip, the Audience Embedded Project has planted new seeds, basically, in our institutional thinking, right? And perhaps we might find the entrance of support of some donors so we can do Audience Embedded Part 2. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Hello. That was great. Um, I'll try not to like pound in this, the reinforcement of some of the items that Flora and Izzy have already hit upon um, while, while I speak. But um, so my experience as a PAS member, I am an audience member. What does that mean? I'm part of the public, right? I, I'm not a historian. I'm not um, in taller, but uh, I, I am interested in HSP. And I think it's important to contextualize mm -hmm. me as an audience member and tell you a little bit about myself. I am involved with HSP because their recent programming I've taken notice to. I work with archives. I have lived in Philadelphia for a little over 20 years now. I am a TV documentarian, so I've done documentaries that air on television. I've worked in primary resources. I've seen archives. I've been in pretty impressive archives in places. Um, but what I found interesting about this project when it was presented to me to participate in was the partnership with Tayyip. Why is that important to me is I've been in and around the Kensington community uh, almost the entire time I've been in Philadelphia in some way. I've been volunteering with a soccer team, a uh, soccer organization in Kensington that deals with youth, the youth that probably go to Tayyip. Yet I had no idea what Tayyip was and how much it meant to the community. And so that introduction alone was huge for me. My experience, uh, m my other interest in, in joining this project is you have two institutions that are vastly different and somewhat insular in a lot of ways, right? HSP isn't a place where you necessarily walk around the street and go, hey, I'm going down to the historic society. Um, and if you talk to m a lot of the population in Philadelphia and say, oh, you know about Tayer, neither one is a kind of a household name in, in that sense. I mean, they're very important and huge institutions, but when you talk about, you know, everyday Jane and Joe, or whatever the names, it's not something that's present in their mind. Now, me as a documentarian, it's important for me to bring that those kind of institutions, whether it's higher education, whether it's marginalized communities or whatever, into the eye line of a broader audience. And so this project for me was perfectly aligned with my general mission in life, which is 
how do we make people learn when they don't know they're learning? How do we fool them? Um, and, I, and for me, this project was a ton of learning from somebody who, you know, I'm educated, uh, I have a master's degree, I, you know, I read stuff, whatever, but when you're exposed to the people who've lived a history, there is an entirely different process of learning. And so over the years, when, when I sat, and, and Laura spoke on this, when I sat over the last couple years, when I sat in these processes of, okay, what do you guys wanna do? And it was very open-ended, which is not my world. My world is, here's your audience, here's an idea, put them together. Don't stray from that, here's your very strict timeline and very strict budget. So this was kind of when I first stepped in, a little bit of a shock. <laughs> I said, oh my gosh, everybody is all over the place. <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> but shortly, shortly into that process, I saw it. I said, oh, this is what's going on. Um, previously, I've, I was involved with a design charrette with a community organization in the historic home in Philadelphia. And it was handled quite differently than this one. I won't name names, but the administrators of as and leaders of that project had this very structured and stringent thing and kept everybody in this bubble and they said, this is what you're gonna do, tell us what you think about it. Okay, you think about, but we are, we're gonna do this. So thanks for your input, we got your input, check. Let's move on. Um, this process was quite different. This process was people getting the time to share their lived experience. People getting the time to say, I found this out about the tobacco industry and how important Puerto Ricans were in, the mi in that migration that to bringing these in this industry here um, from an HSP audience member, then a, a Tayer um, audience member saying, yeah, my father was a part of that and saying, I'm from this part of this neighborhood, we lived here, that, ki that kind of interaction was the best part of this project. I mean, the outcome was the best part, but that kind of interaction as, as a member of the public to look at my neighbor differently, you know? Not, not differently in the sense of like, oh, I know you now, but more so like, okay, your story is nuanced in a way that I can never understand, but also I know now how to talk about it. You know, I know how to approach it. Um, that is something that I didn't expect that this to become. Um, I really wasn't fully prepared to have that type of experience, um, and I was really grateful for that. Uh, I think that when you're talking about getting audiences involved, there does have to be some structure, obviously, um, especially according to people who give you money and grants. Um, but the, the, the way that it was wrangled <laughs> really got us to a point of something bigger than we would have. You know, I always, I always say for, for my personal projects, there's the, that first layer of I got it done, right? There's that first layer of, okay, I found the information, here's how we're gonna tell the story, here's what we're gonna film, and da, 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 it's done. Okay, that's good, but how do you make it better? How do you make it have more layers, more voices, more perspective, and have something more to choose from? And it, it's work. It means don't be lazy. You gotta dig. 
And uh, I found that, you know, going through the archives themselves, I, one particular um, in Tayer, actually, spoke to me the most. I went into this workbook. It looked like a, like a student's workbook kind of deal. And I opened it up, and it was a letter from the um, Pennsylvania Education Association, something, I don't know what they're called, but it was basically called the, um, and it was a, guiden a guidance on how to deal with Spanish-speaking children in your classroom. And it was strictly about um, Puerto Rican children. And one of the items said, Puerto Rican children celebrate their birthdays with piñatas. And this was in the 80s. This was in the 80s. And I, I, I like, it gave me pause, um, obviously. But as I dug through and I looked through this and I was like, wow, this is ridiculous. At the end of it, there was a letter from, oh, I think it's on. <laughs> it was from uh, somebody within Tayer, and they wrote this very, at the time, and it was this amazing letter saying, hey, we've marked this up for you. There are some corrections. Um, this, is, this, this is actually, um, you know, th these are just in inaccurate if you want to fix them, and hey, if you ever want to make programming like this, we encourage you. It's wonderful. Please do, but maybe consult with us first. <laughs> And it was kind of this kind of thing where I, you know, I went. I was in elementary school in the 80s, and you know, I've, I they brought back a personal experience for me where we were reading out loud, and I said I was reading, and I said, and you know, they said, "Pass me a tortilla," and my fourth grade teacher said, "It's tortilla." <laughs> so it's kind of like, oh yeah, this wasn't that long ago that these types of things were happening, and by the way, these types of things are still happening. So for me, that was important to remember as I embark in my own new projects. Okay, how am I listening? When I'm telling a story about other people, how am I giving that audience the power? How am I giving that story the power that it deserves and needs? Because my interpretation is not enough. Um, and I think I credit the project on really truly following through on my our interpretation is not enough. Um, and there were really, really valuable insights from every person that I, the, the other 16 people in the audience uh, in the past group. Um, from diverse backgrounds, from educators in different areas, from, uh, you know, artists themselves that really, like, all had an impact. Like, everybody's voice had an impact, and it wasn't, this stratified impact. It was a true collective impact. Um, you know, any of the kind of opposite feedback I had was recognized, right? So I, like I said, I'm used to, here's your audience, here's kind of the structure, make something fit in that. So we did it backwards. But there was value in that. There really was value in that. Um, and I don't know that I would have gotten the same kind of value that I'm talking about now had we done it that way. Because I think people would have shut off. Because I think, you know, we look at history, we look at education in this curriculum-based, follow this structure, there's a, social, there's a social order in how to learn. And not everybody is from that same social order. And it's important to check yourself 
<laughs> um, I know that there were moments where I checked myself, like I said, I'm used to going in a very structured manner, but sometimes you just gotta be flex more flexible. Um, let's see, what I mean? <laughs> yeah, and, and the other thing was I think that walking away from this, personally, I think other audience members look at themselves now as an ambassador to other people's histories, to other people's stories and voices, um, which if there was more of that in the world, would be a better place. I think there is a good amount of that, but I, I can't speak enough of how important this type of stuff is. Um, and personally, again, um, I, take, I took from this project into my own projects that, that consideration. You know, in, in documentaries, you might have seen people giving somebody in a neighborhood a camera and saying, here, record your story. I'm gonna then take that information without your input and create a story for you. And that was, that was looked at as like progressive, like, whoa, you're giving somebody a camera? They might take it. Or, whoa, you're giving <laughs> somebody, but at the end of the day, it's still your narrative, it's still your editing, it's still your story. Um, and so if you wanna hand the camera over, and let that person tell their own story. Um, and if you're an individual with a responsibility to an audience, look at their look at the story you're telling and make sure you're you're either contextualizing it in your own world and being very upfront with it, or if you're partnering with somebody else and you want to tell their voice, have their voice be be heard, then bring them with you. And that's all I'm gonna say. Hi. Uh, so I'm Ayn, and uh, I was one of the technical advisors, which is the driest term you can imagine, um, and not at all like what happened. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm a playwright, and uh, all my work is, uh, uh, I'm a lover and interrogator of history. All, all my work is kind of based on the idea that uh, traditional form history has been a ruthless editing machine, and it gets rid of everything it doesn't want for the story it wishes to promote and I'm kind of interested in those other stories, and particularly interested in uh, communities or populations that uh, needed in some way to fly undercover in order to become strong, and therefore don't always be behind the kind of artifacts that traditional form history likes, so it don't they don't get historicized, so the loop just continues. Um, and I feel like theater is allowed to uh, <coughs> in it put itself in those gaps in history and make up things that traditional form history can't find. So uh, I got brought in, I think originally the idea was that the technical advisors, or anyway me as a technical advisor, would offer uh, different modes for um, harnessing historical research and, and making different kinds of output than necessarily a traditional historical manifestation. Uh, so I did that presentation and that was fine, but actually that became really a very minor uh, part of what I ended up being in the room for. Um, as I say, I'm kind of a history junkie, so I always wanted to come to all the meetings, even though I didn't have to, it's best that I didn't have to. But um, I always wanted to, and I found that what really, what I really ended up doing in that room is because I work with actors uh, who are the among the most mercurial beings on the face of the planet, I am very used to having to read 
how a room is shifting and perhaps reflect back to the room this seems to be occurring? Or is this what we all think is happening? Do we want this to happen? Did you mean it? Am I hearing it right? Because indeed, as has been pointed out, when the moment came to move towards consensus, there was a real kind of breakdown, logjam moment. <coughs> and I think a couple of things were a part of that. One is, although the leadership teams had been worked overtime to be transparent, available, and democratize the process, there were still things left over from old behavior, like we had not really shared the budget. And at some point, it became clear that part of the thing that was hard when people were talking about how they would manifest their ideas was, did we have a million dollars? Did we have three dollars? How much does a website cost? <laughs> does that cost $10,000? Who's going to do it? How long does that take? All that stuff was getting in the way, actually, of what was supposed to be free-roaming imaginings. We had more practical people in the room. They didn't want to imagine without knowing it could happen or how it would happen. Also, in that same logjam moment was a kind of, um, well, the, sub the separation of, what of subject and format being impossible to, su to separate because people were not, people had great skills in their own careers and they actually turned out to have great research skills and were very dedicated and very thorough, but they were not used to envisioning how their interests go into a public format. So they couldn't quite go there without the team taking back some control they had worked so hard to give up to say, well, here's a format, or here's a format, or here's a format, or those three things could be in one format. And to keep saying, please take it back over, please take everything away from us if you want, but seems like we need to now give you a little bit of information about how things can manifest. And we had a a check-in phone call at some point around that time where I said, I think you can't expect them to know how their fantasies can live creatively in the real world if it's not their practice. So we need to step in at that moment and offer information based on our practice, which is doing that, to hand to them and let them still choose. They are, it should be in control, but we should now be in service to the need, and the new need is, to give information, not only to receive. So I kind of ended up being like the dramaturg of the process, uh, and much more like I would be in a room working with actors and collaborators, figuring out how the information is and isn't flowing. Um, lastly, I would say that also in that moment, it I think it frightened all of us on the team to a certain degree because we were very afraid of slipping back. We were very afraid that using aspects of our expertise would cause us to slip back into a top-down behavior and trying to figure out how to chart a slight crossfade back to behavior we know without becoming who we had try to undo by starting the project in the first place. Thank you. In the time we have remaining, I'd love to open up the floor to questions. We have about 15 minutes for questions and discussion. Um, they've asked me to be sure that I repeat all questions into the microphone. Um, so apologies for the slight awkwardness there. But please, questions, comments, 
The question is, how were the PAS members selected? Um, should I answer this? or I guess. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess I will answer this. So basically, the project leadership, that is the, um, Beth from HSP, Carmen from Tyre, and those of us kind of in the project team already, including myself, met and were like, okay, who do we know who seems to have an interest, may have an interest in this, who's actively engaged in our organizations already, and that we, that are known to us. And we just reached out to a bunch of folks and said, you know, we had documents, um, Beth had prepared documents sort of describing what is a PAS member? What can you expect from this process? And emailed people and said, are you potentially interested in this? Here's what we need as a commitment from you. Here's what we're offering you. What do you say? So it was... There, there wasn't was like an honorarium, right? There was an honorarium. Now, there was no, we debated, should we have like an application process? And we decided eventually not to do that just because, gosh, I think perhaps because of logistics and because we just sort of wanted it to be a bit more organic than that. Um, so that's how we, it wasn't like a super formalized kind of top down sort of, here's an application process uh, to be on the PAS. If that, does that seem mm -hmm. accurate to those of you also here at the table? The selection of the partner, though, I I'm sorry, yeah, I'm going along that same thinking. The how they selected Tayer, right? I think it was through a survey that was done several years before, if I'm not mistaken. It was a survey that was commissioned by HSP, and they looked at a variety of organizations that had some kind of organized archives, if you will, um, and we kind of, you know, they saw ours and thought that it made sense, right? especially given. So it helps to facilitate, right? You have a group that already has some semblance of an archive, right? And is using it for, for programmatic purposes already, then, then it makes sense. So we were, we, I guess we were lucky. Yeah. Other questions? Yes, ma'am. Oh, so resourceful. Oh. So the question is, what kind of buy-in and what kind of pushback was there from the community um, in terms of people being willing to invest in the project? Um, is that is that accurate? Would you say? Would anyone like? Again, I didn't I didn't get to that design. I was in that design phase. Uh, so I guess I have a question no. for you. What you mean by would you say by pushback from the community? What is the community? What do you mean by community? Tayer. Uh huh. Okay. Um, in my experience, I did not see anyone who was like, I mean, it, the only kind of not wanting to participate was more of a pragmatic, like, I'm sorry, I'm afraid I can't be a PAS member because I have an alternate commitment or something. There was never any like, oh my God, that's the worst idea ever. Get it away from me. No, we certainly didn't. I, I didn't see that. Did any of you yeah, see that? Yeah, on, on the other hand, we didn't, uh, uh, the project wasn't announced all over the place. It wasn't in the local papers it wasn't in other words so 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 in some ways yeah I, I can see where 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 you're going with that so they yeah there was no and most folks when we spoke about it um, at our meetings at the organization or people then started talking you know Carmen would get up and talk about the yes programs and among them we were talking about this new project people say yeah yeah sounds good do it you know it was this thing and this has to do with the nature of the of the work. In other words, how many people you know who want to go to HSP and spend three or four hours 
trying to learn how to do that. Right now, student, yes, right? But, but so making those connections was real hard. So no, I don't, you know, uh, besides, I was not really doing any real publicity to the end. Hopefully now we'll, you know, with the upcoming, you know, September 18th press conference, it'll be the first time that publicly people get a sense of what the project was, the outcomes, and some of the future insights. Uh, so the question was, again, how did the collaboration between HSP and Tyre kind of come to be? Um, and yes, I think that was this, uh, the sort of survey of small archives or small repositories uh, and Tyre's archive uh, was identified as one of the strongest and most organized, um, amazingly, of those small kind of community organization-based archives. Um, the Right. Oh, right. In terms of applying for the grant. Now, th I, I can't, sp I didn't I can't write the grant, so I can't speak to that. Yeah. I believe it was primarily from HSP with some input from Tyre, but I, again, I was not involved in that process, so no, no. Uh, Beth, perhaps Beth, Beth should answer this Beth question. A <laughs> fearless leader. I saw your hand, sir, there sort of in front of you.
I mean, again, Beth may be the best person to answer this. I'm happy to answer it to the best of my ability. Um, so the question is, how do we settle on the number of PAS members and the number of technical advisors? So I'll start with technical advisors. My understanding was that those were outlined in the grant itself, in the proposal. So we'd already lined up the, the commitment of those individuals. There was a little bit of, of shifting. Um, as uh, Izzy mentioned, the presentation by Victor Vasquez, uh, who is a historian of Puerto Ricans in Philadelphia, uh, who presented to our group, but then had to kind of withdraw from his more uh, involved role as a technical advisor. Uh, he was replaced by Dr. Ariel Andrew, who was a student of his, um, so was an excellent successor to him, um, but he still presented to the group. So we had the technical advisors sort of set um, from the grant proposal itself. The PAS group, I believe we wanted to get between 15 and 20 people. And uh, you know, we started with, I think about 20. We had a couple of folks sort of dr have to drop out and we ended up with 17. I, I would say I, I believe the technical advisors were all also based on previous relationships of the two organizations. So sort of they were being called in, they were cast very, they were cast carefully. No, that was not in the. That was not preordained. Um, there was a lot of talk. I said at some early meeting about how the archive is the domain of the converted, and that seemed to hit home with many people. Uh, the notion that people who go to archives are people who know in the archive, which is why they're going to it to get more of what they already know, and that they were wishing to reach people who were sort of the accidental tourist, and the website. And also youth was a big, everyone wanted to reach youth and everyone agreed that that's, that youth are gonna be digitally accessed, not, uh, they're not gonna come to an institution. So that, that was what, that was very much the wish of the PAS. There was no playwright in the group. We talked some about, uh, we talked some about using a, a previous play that had been done 40 years ago that was in the archives and updating it and that it interested me but didn't get as much traction amongst <laughs> the group. <laughs> we talked about murals. Yeah, yeah. we talked uh, uh, to kind of uh, replicate um, some of, uh, at least some of us, uh, trying to figure out all these things. There were a lot of ideas, uh, some of which I think will come to fruition. I mean, independent from this process, right, and all that, which is the idea, I hope. Yeah, there was th there was no shortage of no. ideas. <laughs> so the question is, uh, is everything over when the website launches on September 18th? Um, no, uh, that is the end of the formal grant period, right? But as I hope we've all talked about, this project's got legs long beyond the sort of the deliverables to the pew. Um, th what we have, for example, I know Tyre, uh has got a, another grant-funded project through William Penn um, to tell stories of its neighborhood through monumental sculpture. And, and that process, the, the um, historical material to tell those stories is part of the product of the, the archival research undertaken by the PAS members. So already, at least Tyre is devi has devised future projects to build on all the riches that came up through the audience embedded process. Anyone want to? Other questions? Comments? Feedback? In Espanol? In Espanol? Yes. Yeah, right. yeah. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, the name Paz, yes. In Spanish, it means peace and program audience Zoomer, sort of. Yeah. There was a whole thing. Yeah. So. Right. Other questions, comments, feedback? So the question is, is this either scalable, um, up or down, or replicable, right? Would anyone like to? I'll talk. I think this is, oh. So last call for questions. It's almost quarter past, but if there's any last question, be happy to take it. If not, I thank you all so much thank for you. being here. Thank you. thank you so much to all of our speakers and to Beth, who's here as well, our fearless leader. Thank you all very much.